Well, Father, may these great truths that, about which we've just sung and uh, your word as we open it now and study it together, may these work together to encourage our hearts, to strengthen us, to give us a clarity of mind as to what uh, your word has spoken towards and that we would have strong churches, that we would be men and women and boys and girls who walk in obedience and that we would know the joy of your hand of blessing upon us. Father, may this be more than just a Sunday morning ritual. Uh, May it be filled with great meaning, and may your Holy Spirit use your word now very well in our lives. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. I invite you once again this morning as we continue our study in Paul's letter to young Timothy, the first epistle of Timothy, 1 Timothy chapter 1, and if you'll take your Bibles and turn there, I was thinking uh, about a story that I have heard Janet tell numerous times, and I always uh, find it interesting, and it is about the very first time that they, when she was a little girl, maybe 10 years old, when she and her sister and her mom and dad made their way to a new church. They had had some problems in the church where they had been attending, and it was uh, uh, time to find a new church. There was division in the body. Uh, People were upset. Things had not been going well. And so they were seeking a new church. And they had had a friend tell them about a little church called Independent Bible Church in Martinsburg. And so they decided to take the cue from their friend and go to church that Sunday at this new church. Do you know what it's like to go to to a church for the very first time? Do you remember your first impression? It's not always easy, is it? Well, Janet tells the story of being in the back seat. She was probably about 10 years old. And uh, so they were driving in. And at that time, Independent Bible Church met in an old cement block building that had been a warehouse. And they turned in the driveway. And it was rough gravel with potholes and water in the holes. And uh, the building was very unattractive. And this is the part of the story that I remember. She remembers her father looking at her mother in the front seat saying, Well, we're here, so we'll go in, but we'll not come back to this church. What is it that you use for the standard of your church? Now, praise the Lord, they went in, and guess what happened? Guess what happened? The love of Christ that was in the body, the power of Christ that was in the preaching, made the potholes in the parking lot, and the color of the walls, and the kind of chairs, and the fact that they were way beyond already at that point, 70 or 80% capacity, they were packing out every chair, and people were standing in the back, they never went anywhere else, and in fact, her mother still attends there. Her father's with the Lord. And God grew them in their church. Isn't it great when church is working well? When Christ is the center? When people love one another? When the leadership is is teaching and preaching in the context of sound doctrine? People are growing. Then you know what? You don't need, the number they use now is 70% capacity for a room. Once you reach, once you fill seven out of ten chairs, they say, you will not grow anymore in that room. I don't know if it's true or not. We'll just keep, have to keep going here until ever, there's plenty of room tonight. I guess we're about 60% today. But when, when Christ is at the center and God's word is meaningful to us, and we're growing in grace together, aren't those rich days? 
That's not what had been happening at Ephesus. In fact, at the church at Ephesus, where young Pastor Timothy has been positioned strategically by the Apostle Paul, and now Paul has left for Macedonia, he is writing a letter back to Timothy, and he's tasked him with a very important assignment. He recognizes that things in the church had changed. The teaching of the Word of God had turned away from sound doctrine. And things had not been going so well. And young Timothy, as we focused upon last week, was tasked with a very important uh, job, and that was to confront the leadership and shut them down from teaching false doctrine. And in fact, that's where we want to begin our message today with a review of, of kind of that concept from last week. And so we just have three points that we want to hang our thoughts on today. Point number one is a review upon which the rest of the message is built today. And that is number one, that there was a need for confrontation. There was the need for confrontation. Paul then is going to address a matter that comes up and he's going to, going to, uh, identify a certain point of doctrine. And the second thing we're going to talk about is is his need for clarification. He's going to clarify a doctrine. We're going to close out with an illustration from the teaching of Christ with a closing illustration. I hope you'll listen carefully because one of the things we need to realize as we continue our study on church matters is that churches break relatively easy. Do you know that you have to be careful with your church? You have to use caution. It's breakable. Handle with care. Let's read the first part of our text, and I'll explain what I mean. And I think you might be surprised at how quickly church can break down, even when they've had the best of foundations upon which to to begin and to grow. 1 Timothy chapter 1. Let's review the text from last week and read it quickly. We'll not camp on it. Paul says to young Timothy in his letter, I urged you when I went into Macedonia to stay there in Ephesus so that you may command certain men not to teach false doctrines any longer. There it was, the need for confrontation. He says they are devoting themselves to myths and endless genealogies and these only promote controversies, schisms, division rather than God's work. The stewardship of God's work is not developed when false teaching goes on and the gospel is not preached. This is all by faith. Verse 5, the goal of his command is love. Of this command is love, which comes from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Some have wandered from these and turned to meaningless talk. They want to be teachers of the law, but they do not know what they are talking about or what they so confidently affirm. We don't know everything that they were teaching in Ephesus, but evidently what happened, and it evidently, as we focused on last week, happened at the leadership level, either of the elders, the teachers of the church, some of them became focused upon themselves rather than Christ, and they evidently had an image of their mind of some kind of an of a Old Testament expert in the law, somebody who knew the Old Testament scriptures, and they began to focus, instead of on Christ, instead of on salvation by grace through faith in Christ alone, they began to teach some of the Old Testament teachings of the law and began to focus upon some of the things that they believed people needed to do to earn a righteousness that would please God and somehow give them a salvation. 
And they were focusing on a works, evidently, because it was turning to the law. And they evidently had some kind of a priest or some kind of a rabbi in mind. And they wanted to be esteemed in their church as really knowledgeable. And in their pride and in their self-centeredness, they became, they began to come up with new ideas and new nuance. And they began to teach things that the Apostle Paul calls myths Endless genealogies, focusing on certain passages, no doubt, of the Old Testament, and talking about things that the Apostle Paul called meaningless talk. It's just meaningless. And so he says to Timothy, confront it, make it shut down. Shut it down, don't let it happen. And one of the things that I find so interesting about this is how quickly the church at Ephesus had turned away from the truth. We've been mentioning this week to week, but I want to take a minute and I want you to turn with me back to to the Acts of the Apostles, Acts in chapter 20, and I want to just remind you at how easily church can break, why it is so important that we handle with care our church, our ministry, what's being taught, because churches can break down in a hurry. Acts chapter 20, take a look at it, and I want you to really realize Uh, the great privilege that the church at Ephesus had in their beginning years. We think of the church at Ephesus as being one of the stronger, one of the more put-together New Testament churches that we have as an example for us. And notice uh, their beginning. Notice early in their history. This is a time when the Apostle Paul was leaving Ephesus. He had gathered the Ephesian elders of the church Possibly some of the very same men that Timothy is charged with shutting down. Some of these very same men right here, right now, in Acts chapter 20, are in an audience with the Apostle Paul as he's departing. And he tells them, I might never see you again. And so the Ephesians love Paul. They were weeping because they thought he was departing and they would never see him again. And he says, look what he says, uh, beginning, uh, I want you to look at uh, beginning with verse 20. He says, you know, you know that I have not hesitated to preach anything that would be helpful to you, but have taught you publicly and from house to house. Now think about it. This is the Apostle Paul reminding the Ephesians about how he started this church among them. Now think about who this is. How great is that? The Apostle Paul comes to your town, has a Bible study, you get invited to it, the church starts, and the Apostle Paul is your teacher. When they gather publicly, he's the preacher. He said publicly and from house to house. How would you like it for the Apostle Paul to say, hey, get some coffee ready, I'm coming over Thursday night. Two or three hours, you sit at your dining room table, and the Apostle Paul teaches you. What a privilege. I mean, apart from our Lord Jesus... What could you want more than the guy who wrote most of the New Testament sitting in your living room drinking coffee, expounding upon all of the great doctrines of Christ and all of the truths of our salvation in Christ and how we're no longer under the law, but it's by grace through faith in Christ alone and what it means to be a Christian. And Paul says, you know that I publicly and from house to house personally taught you. Let's let our eyes go down to verse 27 and look what else he says. He says, for I have not hesitated to proclaim to you the whole will of God. So he taught him from Genesis to Revelation, basically. He said, I thoroughly taught you. The Apostle Paul personally in his teaching ministry to the Ephesians. Now keep watch, he warns them, verse 28, over yourselves and all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Be shepherds of the church of God, which he bought with his own blood. 
It's a precious thing. He bought it with his own blood, this church and the church. That after I leave, savage wolves will come in from among you, among you, they will come in from the outside among you and will not spare the flock. Even from your own number, men will arise and distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after them. And that's exactly what Timothy is dealing with in the church at Ephesus. In the letter that Paul writes that we have as 1 Timothy, this is what Paul warned would happen and this is what Timothy is charged with confronting and shutting down. He goes on to say, so be on your guard. Remember that for three years, I never stopped warning each of you night and day with tears. Now think about it. The Apostle Paul had the public ministry of this church. The Apostle Paul himself personally went house to house. He built the church. And for how long did he teach them the whole will of God? For how long? Three years. He was their pastor. He grew them. He taught them. Now turn back to 1 Timothy chapter 1, and I want this to hit you between the eyes. When Paul is writing Timothy, it is, it is approximately four years after he reminded the Ephesian elders in Acts 20 that I have just spent three years with you. I've taught you house to house. I've taught you in the public teaching. I've taught the whole will of God to you. I've done it with tears streaming down my cheeks. I have poured myself into this ministry. And four years later, he has to write a letter to Timothy to tell him to shut down the false teachers in the church. Listen, churches break easily. And I'll tell you something. You can gripe about potholes in the parking lot, the color of the carpet, what color the walls are, whether there's donuts or coffee available when you walk in. But do you know what really matters about your church is what's being taught from God's word. What kind of gospel is being preached? Is it the accurate teaching of the word of God and is it being done in such a way that Christ is honored and lifted up? The body is being built and as our eyes are on Christ, we're loving one another, we're walking in obedience. That's what really matters. And at Ephesus, it had begun to break. They didn't handle it with care. And in just four years after the Apostle Paul's own mighty ministry there personally for three years, this thing is turning away from what it's supposed to be. Do you think if the Apostle Paul can teach a ministry for three years and in just a 48 months it turns away from the truth that it is possible for our church to turn away from the truth in a short time? It absolutely is. And so we have the warning, and that's the first part of our message that we talked specifically about last week, that there was, number one, the need for confrontation. Now let's read the rest of our text today, verses 8 through 11. And uh, I want you to see also that the Apostle Paul felt that there was a need now for clarification. There was a need for clarification. He says, we know, verse 8, that the law is good if one uses it properly. We also know that the law is made not for the righteous, but for the lawbreakers and rebels, the ungodly and sinful, the unholy and irreligious, for those who kill their fathers or mothers, for murderers, for adulterers and perverts, for slave traders and liars and perjurers, and for whoever, whatever else is contrary to the sound doctrine that conforms to the glorious gospel of the blessed God, which he entrusted to me. Now, this is kind of an interesting paragraph that the Apostle Paul writes. 
It's essentially one sentence, um, basically, when the Apostle Paul wrote it. And it's just a long sentence. And one of the things I think that will help us understand it is something that is notable about the Apostle Paul's writing. And it's something that some of you can identify with, I'll bet. It is that when he's writing along, he will say a word and that word will trip in him the thought about something and it turns him a new direction based upon a word that he's just said. Let me show you what I mean. He's been talking here about these false teachers, the need for confrontation, and notice what he says in verse 7. They want to be teachers of the law, but they don't know what they're talking about or what they so confidently affirm. And when he said the word law, it tripped him. him. The, uh, the concept in his mind, you can kind of see it. And, it. and he goes on a little bit of a side trail right now. And at verse 8, then he says, but we know that the law is good. Okay, so he's hammering the guys who are abusing the law, guys that are teaching the law inappropriately. But he wants the people to know, but the word law, trip. but the law is good. The law is good. And the law is for lawbreakers. It is, it is not for the righteous, but it is for rebels and lawbreakers. And then that leads him into a, a litany, a list, a grocery list of all kinds of wicked people that really need the law. So from that, we can only deduce a couple things here because he doesn't tell us exactly what the ministry was that was turning away from the pure gospel among the leaders that needed confrontation. But in his clarification, notice what the Apostle Paul says. First of all, he says, the law is good. Let's stop for a minute and let's just make sure you know what we're talking about when we say the law. All right, is this like the speed limit? What is this? The easiest way for you to think about it would be the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments. Remember when Moses went up on the mount and he came down with the Ten Commandments? And God had spoken, and remember the first four, especially of those, the first half of the list, he said things like, you shall have no other gods before me. You shall not use my name in vain. You shall not create any false idols. All right? It's the law. God is a God of expectations. I want you to do this. And then he says, okay, so the first half, he said, remember the Sabbath to keep it holy. You're supposed to worship me. You're supposed to keep things going here. Between, and they're all directed towards God, the first part of the list. And then he starts into the list of thou shalt not steal. Thou shalt not bear false witness. Thou shalt not do murder. That thou shalt not part. Don't covet your neighbor's wife or his horse or his donkey or his Buick. Whatever. All right. And all of the second half of the list is related to our fellow man. How to get along with one another. And then in the New Testament, we know that Jesus taught that we sum up all of the law and the prophets. Everything they taught in the Old Testament can be summed up into two great commands. They either teach us all of those laws, either teach us how to love the Lord your God with all your heart. Remember the Sabbath, keep it holy. Don't use his name in vain. Don't put any other images or gods before your eyes. Don't worship anything but God. Love the Lord your God with all your heart. And the second is like unto it. Love your neighbor as yourself. Don't lie to him. Don't sleep with his wife. Don't murder him. Don't kick his dog. Don't flatten his tires. Be kind. How to love God. How to love my neighbor. It's all summed up there. And so that's what we mean by the law. But what you need to understand if you don't know your Bible very well is that there's more than 10 commandments in the Old Testament. There's all kinds of commandments. And in fact... By God's instruction, he gave specific instruction to do all kinds of things for his people. 
And he told them how to worship specifically on certain feast days. He told them what to do with those feasts. He told them how to, how to offer certain offerings that represented certain things about God. He had all kinds of things. Even the, the shedding of blood among young animals. You've heard of, perhaps you've heard of the Old Testament sacrifice system, many of you. And they, the father would kill an animal and the blood would shed, be shed as a picture of the fact that because of sin, there had to be death for the sin to be covered. And the blood represented the covering of sin, but all of that was temporary. And ultimately, the Old Testament presents a picture of what was coming in the New Testament. And it's because of the Old Testament law and the sacrifices that we will use phrases in the New Testament like, like that Jesus is the Lamb of God. He's a lamb that came and shed his blood for sin. What is that picture? Where did that come from? It came from the Old Testament, from the law that they were supposed to keep to take care of their sin. It was very cumbersome. And guess what? It was designed ultimately to show them that they could never take care of all their sins on their own. Now, here's what evidently was happening in Ephesus that Paul writes Timothy and tells him to confront and that he needs to clarify as well. These teachers who wanted to be seen as experts in the law had evidently departed from what Paul had been teaching them with tears for three years, the whole will of God, and they had focused on the Old Testament law, but in this aspect. They set up rules and they began to set up systems And they began to teach, evidently, that part of your salvation is dependent on what you do before God. That you have to do these things and you have to keep certain rules or God is not pleased with you. And it turned into, evidently, a works system whereby the keeping of the law, somehow, if I keep the Old Testament law, God would be pleased and I will be seen as spiritual And it was a turning away of what Christ had done for me. Because you see, what we're going to see here, and we're going to look up some verses, and I'll say it a couple different times in a couple different ways, is that ultimately nobody can keep the law. You have to get that straight in your head. You can't keep the law. In fact, the law is supposed to frustrate you. The law is supposed to get you to a place where you say, how can anybody keep all these laws? And then we're supposed to realize that we have one who came His name was Jesus, and he was the perfect son of God. And because he was perfect, he didn't need a law. He ultimately, he fulfilled all the law. And he kept the law for us. And it's what he did for us that saves us, not what these teachers are telling their church, that you've got to do some things to keep the law to be saved. And it was a twisting of the truth. So that's what I'm talking about when I say the law. Look what Paul says by way of clarification now. He says, we know that the law is good. So he wants to throw out the teachers, but he doesn't want to throw out the law. Okay? He says, the law is good. We know the law is good. Think about these verses. Think about Psalm 19.7. The law of the Lord is perfect. The law of the Lord is perfect. Jesus in his Sermon on the Mount teaching in Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 through 20. Do you remember what he said? He said, I have not come to abolish the law, but I have come to fulfill the law. You see, he's the only one that technically you could say that he kept every point of the law perfectly. He fulfilled every point of the law. 
He never broke the law at any level. No one else can say that, only Jesus. And so Paul says, listen, they're teaching the law, but they're teaching it wrong. But the law is good, verse 8, back to our text. The law is good, first part of his clarification. The law is good, the law of the Lord is perfect. The second thing, verse 9, he wants to clarify. Not only is the law good when it is used properly, but we also know that the law is made not for the righteous, but for the lawbreakers and the rebels. The second thing he wants to clarify is that it's not the righteous people who are born again in the church that are to focus on the law. The law is given for the lawbreakers. Let's go back to third grade. Your classroom in third grade. Remember all the goody two-shoes little girls? They sat up front. Did the teacher make up the classroom rules because of the goody little girls in the front? No, it was the bad boys like Van Marceau in the back. It was the rebels, the lawbreakers. You don't have to tell little girls on the front row, when you're done with your trash, put it in the trash can. You've got to tell the bad little boys so they don't throw it at somebody. The law of the class wasn't for the good kids. The, the classroom rules were for the bad kids. You don't have to tell the good little girls like Janet Parsons and people like that to, to not go for, to stand in a line. They like to stand in lines. They like to do what the teacher says. They like to do their homework on time. There's a lot of you like that. And then there's a lot of people like me that think, why do we got to do that? I didn't get to go first. And oh, then you realize the law is there to show the lawbreakers what they're doing wrong. Okay, it's the unrighteous that need the law. Now, the Apostle Paul doesn't teach it here in 1 Timothy, but I suspect that this is precisely the kind of teaching that he did house to house and in public for three years that will teach us more about what he means by the law was given for the unrighteous, not the righteous. Let's look at it in Romans chapter 3, verses 19 and 20. This is the kind of teaching that no doubt the Ephesian believers had received from him. Because he repeats himself over and over on his teaching. And in Romans chapter 3, verses 19 and 20, I want you to see what he's talking about here as he expands upon this point. Romans 3, 19 and 20. Look what he says. Romans 3, 19 and 20. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced... And the whole world held accountable to God. How many in the world? Everybody has to be quiet. The law shuts them down. You're all guilty, basically. Look at verse 20. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in his sight by observing the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of sin. You see that? So these teachers in Ephesus were teaching at some level what the Apostle Paul says in verse 20 cannot happen. There is no righteousness that you can attain on yourself by keeping all the rules. You can't do it. But the law was given at the end of verse 20. Look at, rather through the law, we become conscious of sin. Okay, let's, let's go out back in the backyard and we're building a shed. And we're building a shed and we're very proud of our project. And we've laid out our two-by-fours and we're nailing it together. You know, no bought and prefab job here. This is, 
handyman van building the shed. We're going to make it here and we lay it out and looks good to me. Stand it up. It looks good. But then what do we do? We get our tape measure and we start measuring between our studs and we realize, well, that one's 14 inches and that one's 16 inches and that one's 15. You know, when I look at it, it looks pretty good. But when I put the rule to it, I realize it's pretty far off. And then when I stand that wall up and tack it in place, I realize that looks pretty good right about there. Then I grab the old four foot level and put it up against and I check the plumb and I see that I'm off by inch and a quarter from top to bottom in a six-foot high shed wall. That's a lot. It looked good to me. I think it's good. No, but what did I need? I needed a standard. I needed something up against which to put myself so that I realize, you know what, I'm not so good after all. When I, when I realize, here's the law, I'm really not doing so well. It looks good, but when I put the precise standard and I put it together, I put the four-foot level up against the wall, I realize this wall has problems. That's what he's saying. The law isn't for the righteous, but the law is for the unrighteous. The law is there for us to realize, you know what? I really am a pretty bad guy. I I do use the Lord's name in vain. I do have a lot of things in my life that I worship, and I have things that I think about way more than God, and, and I do have lusts in my heart, and I do take my imaginations places it should never go, and, and I do wish that something really bad would happen to that guy, and I don't love my neighbor as myself, and I don't love the Lord my God with all my heart. I have issues, and if it weren't for the law, I wouldn't know that I have issues. I would think, I'm pretty straight, I'm pretty good, I'm really good here, until I put the old level of the law up against it, right? Galatians adds to this. Paul's teaching in Galatians. Let's turn to one more here. Galatians chapter 2. So head back towards 1 Timothy, Romans, 1 and 2 Corinthians, and then Galatians chapter 2. And look at just two verses here very quickly. And look what he says. Look at Galatians 2 verse 16. Galatians 2 16. The Apostle Paul teaching... And I'm surmising this is exactly what he taught the Ephesian believers as well. Know that a man, verse 16, chapter 2, Galatians, know that a man is not justified by observing the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So what's upsetting Paul is the teachers in the Sunday school classes at Ephesus were saying, you can be justified by keeping the law. Paul says you cannot keep, be justified by keeping the law. It is by faith in Jesus Christ alone. Because you can't keep the law. Only Jesus kept the law and he allowed us to be credited to his account by faith. And then it's like we kept the law, only he kept it for us. Look at chapter 3 and look at verse 10. All who rely on observing the law are under a curse. For it is written, cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. He goes on, and there's more there, but turn back to 1 Timothy. Here's his point. If you have somebody in your Sunday school class teaching you that there's some kind of rules you can keep, some kind of law that you can keep that will somehow make God smile upon you and pour his grace out on you. You might be like, if you get baptized, then this will happen. Or if you do this or say these prayers or count these beads and do this. No, you can't do any of that. You can't keep the law. And in fact, you're cursed 
If you're counting on yourself, keeping the law, you're under a curse because you're going to die. You're going to lose your soul because you're outside of Christ. And that's what upset the Apostle Paul so much that this kind of teaching was going on in Ephesus and why Pastor Timothy had to confront it and why they had to straighten it out. There was this need for clarification. He clarified that the law was good, verse 9. He clarified that the law is for the unrighteous, not the righteous. He goes on and gives an example of sin, of sinful people. And, and basically, it's, I think it's just an ad hominem, it's just a, a list that the Apostle Paul put down that came to his mind of the kind of people whose hearts are far from God or who, dis, who destroy their relationship with their fellow man. Notice the first part of the list talks about our relationship with our standing before God. We also know, verse 9, that the law is not for the righteous, but for lawbreakers and rebels, for the ungodly and sinful, the unholy and the irreligious. Okay, those are people who will trample on the things that God said is sacred. People who don't care about God. There's a lot of people like that. They don't care. And they don't care about their relationship with God. And not only that, they don't care about their relationship with their fellow man. For they will kill their fathers or mothers. The idea there is someone who will strike out against their parents. 16-year-old kid who will curse and swing at his dad. Push and knock down his mother. Or hate him so much or literally kill their parents. For murderers, thou shalt not kill. For adulterers and perverts, adulterers. Any kind of sexual involvement that is outside the parameters of a marriage relationship that is holy before God. Perverts, it literally means men in the marriage bed. It's a homosexual offense. Men in the marriage bed is what that word basically means. For slave traders and liars and perjurers, slave traders, evidently there was actually a a kind of kidnapping going on. Slavery was a way you could make some money. They were abusing the rights of other people and then liars and those who lie under oath. The Apostle Paul is just making a list of people who are out there living. They think they're good, but they're really messed up. That's who the law is for. The law is to come get in their face and for them to realize, I've got a problem. I, I can't. I know I'm a sinner. I know I'm wrong. I want to take just a minute, though, and I want to... I want to comment on something that could be a whole message in and of itself. You see, what we're talking about here that was going on in the church at Ephesus that Paul told Timothy to confront was that an element of legalism was coming in the church. That is, that by keeping the law, you could please God. And so Paul says, no, the law is good. It's a good thing. The law is good. It's fulfilled in Christ. It's the perfect law. We need it. It brings order to our lives. We know what is right and wrong because of the law. But we're not doing that for our salvation. And it's for the unrighteous, not the righteous. So then what makes a legalistic church today? You hear that kind of term around. And, 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 and almost anything now uh, can be called legalism in the church. It's like... I get accused of being legalistic because we sing out of a hymnal and I wear a suit and a tie on Sunday morning. Do you know that I can do church without a hymnal and without a suit and a tie? And do you know that I know that I'm not going to heaven because of our hymnal and our suit and a tie? I could talk a little bit more about those things. But basically, the reason I wear a suit and a tie on Sunday morning is because one of my favorite coaches, he's a bad guy, and you probably don't like this, but is Pat Riley in the NBA. And I thought, if Pat Riley dresses up for a game, then I'm dressing up when I preach. 
I've been thinking about slicking my hair back, but I haven't. That's old school. Do you know that I've been to church and I've ministered up front of church with, in my stocking feet and my blue jeans and my flannel church and my sweatshirt up on the Yukon River? Wear my hip boots to church? It doesn't matter what you wear to church. It really doesn't, as long as it's modest. We'll talk about that later in this book. See, legalism is not when the pastor just thinks it's important to, to keep the Sunday morning platform good and the way I like it, I wear a shirt and a tie. It's not legalism. It's my personal choice. I'm not counting on this to get me to heaven. It has nothing to do with that. Legalism in the church is when you're doing something And if you don't do it, you really begin to worry whether or not you're saved and whether or not you're going to get to heaven if you don't do these things. Now, the pendulum can swing too far. And our Christian love should cover all these preferences. That's why it doesn't bother me a bit for to see Kevin Tucker coming in his shorts and a t-shirt all summer long. It doesn't bother me. I love Kevin Tucker. I love it that he's here serving the Lord. I never think he's not right with God because of his shorts. You see? It's not legalism. That's not legalism at all, that I'm wearing a tie, somebody else is wearing shorts. What would be legalism is if I stood at the door and said, you can't come in here and worship and we won't love you like we love Christ if you're wearing shorts. There's an element of kind of a legalism gone wrong. So what is it that we say no to? I know that our clock is waning, but we had turned to your right to the book of Titus, First and Second Timothy, Titus. And let me just comment a little bit more on this. There's probably deserving of a whole message. But I don't want anybody to be confused. It is not legalism to say no to sin. It is not legalism to say no to sin. And in fact, when we say, well, I will do this, but I won't do that. Okay? I, I will do this, but I won't do that because I believe that that is outside of the will of God for my life. Therefore, for me to do it would violate my conscience. It could possibly violate the direct teaching of Scripture, and therefore it's sin. And so I say no to that. So is that not legalism? It's not legalism at all. It's holy living. We're called to live a holy life. We're called to live separate from the world. We're called to walk in obedience to God's Word. And in fact... That is grace living. Because Titus, Paul tells Titus, look at verse 11 of chapter 2, that it is the same grace of God that brought you salvation, unmerited favor, the grace that brings salvation. This grace has appeared to all men. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. Listen, If you're going to live self-controlled, upright, and godly in this present age, there are certain places you can't go, certain things you can't look at, and certain behaviors you cannot do. And he says clearly, by God's grace that brought salvation to you, you will then have, through the power of the Holy Spirit, the self-control to look at something and say, no, no, I don't do that. In the old days, yep. In the new days, I say no by God's grace. But I don't say it so I can go to heaven. I say it because I'm going to heaven. Do you get the difference? Because Christ is in me. Because the power of Christ is in me. Because of his great grace, he has saved me. I want to walk in holy living. And I will say no to something. And you have to be very careful. 
looking at a Christian brother or sister who has chosen to say no to some things of this world because they can't go there anymore for whatever reason and call them a legalist. It's not true necessarily. Some areas are gray areas and some of you have freedoms to to go into things, to eat meat offered to idols, using a biblical expression. But I'm telling you, disobedience to the direct teaching of God's word is not eating meat offered to idols. It's just disobedience and it's sin. And so walking in obedience is not legalism. But the legalism that was being taught in the church was that if you do certain things, God will please be pleased and you can get into heaven because of that. That's what legalism is. I want to end with an illustration here that I think will help make this clear. It's from Jesus' teaching in Luke chapter 18. Will you listen closely as we wrap up? Luke chapter 18. It's a very short story, and it's a very clear point. So the Apostle Paul said, in the church, there's a need for confrontation. He further brings further clarification to the ministry by saying the law is good. It's the unrighteous who need the law, not the righteous. And the law does certain things for us. Let's look up close and personal at a picture of what this looks like in people's lives. Luke 18, verse 9. To some who are confident of their own righteousness. See, that's legalism. Legalism is when I think I've done things right enough that I am a righteous person based on my own works. And look down on everybody else. Jesus said to some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down at everybody else, he told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray. One, a Pharisee, and the other, a tax collector. The Pharisee stood up and prayed about himself. God, I thank you that I am not like other men, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. You see, you have to understand that tax collectors, Jesus is comparing and contrasting two men, a Pharisee, a keeper of the law, somebody who committed their whole life to the study of the Old Testament, somebody who would say, well, I never lie. He's lying to himself when he says he never lied. Somebody who says, I never cheated, I never did this, I never did that. Or even like this, and I'm glad I'm not even like this tax collector. And in this culture, a tax collector was a despicable person. It was somebody who was a cheat. Everybody knew he was a cheat. He was a liar. Everybody knew that he was a liar. He was famous for saying, you owe $39 worth of taxes, when really you only owed $29 worth of taxes so that he could take $10 and put it in his pocket. That's what tax collectors did. They often chose people from a neighborhood so they knew where, where the bound, they knew the neighborhood, they knew who owned what property, so they would get somebody in their own neighborhood to become the tax collector. And what he, in essence, would have to do is turncoat on his whole neighborhood and he would scalp his whole neighborhood for the sake of Rome, taxing, collecting taxes. He was just a despicable person. He lied, he cheated, he didn't care about his fellow man. And so the Pharisee comes into the temple and he prays and he begins to pray and he says... He stood up so everybody could see him, and he, he prayed about himself. Look at that. He prayed about himself. I thank you that I'm not like other men. Well, that's pride right there, isn't it? And the pride of life. Robbers and evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. And I fast twice a week, and I give a tenth of all I get. This man was consumed with the fact that he did everything right, and therefore he was righteous, and he wasn't like low-life scum. Now look at the low-life scum guy. But the tax collector stood at a distance and he would not even look up to heaven. But he beat his breast and he said, God, 
have mercy on me, a sinner. There's a man. There's a man that had somehow the lights had come on and he was up against the four-foot level, wasn't he? And he realized how crooked he really was. He wouldn't even look at God and in his humility... The law overwhelmed him and he realized that he had broken it on so many points that he could never get into heaven. He could never please God. He was a dirty, rotten scoundrel and he wouldn't even look up in his brokenness. That's what the law is supposed to do. Not puff up with pride like the Pharisee. Notice what Jesus says to end out the story. He says, I tell you that this man, verse 14, rather than the other went home justified before God. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. That man went home justified. I love that word justified. Do you know what it means? It means that at the moment that that dirty, rotten tax collector sinner admitted his sinfulness before a holy God, recognized that he had no righteousness of his own, recognized that he had violated the law on every point, He could never keep the law. He could never get into God's heaven. He admitted it, acknowledged it before God in humility that God in a judicial act, this is what justification means, God in a judicial act declares him once and for all righteous as though he had never sinned. That's justification. He didn't deserve it. He couldn't earn it. It had to be done for him, and the only person who could do it for him, because Old Testament and New Testament alike, everybody is saved because of the blood of Christ. Their salvation is in Christ alone, by faith alone. What Christ did, he kept the law for the dirty, rotten sinner. He kept the law for him. The dirty, rotten sinner comes and acknowledges his sinfulness, and then he receives as a free gift, that's grace, By believing it to be true for him, that's faith. And that righteousness is transferred over to him. And he didn't do anything to deserve it. That's a powerful reality. Do you know that? But do you see how lost the Pharisee was? Oh, I did this and I did this and I don't admit myself. I'm really good. That's legalism. Legalism will kill you. But when you look at the law as an unrighteous person and you realize, oh, I have violated it, and you fall on your face before a holy God and you recognize there's nothing I can do to ever keep this law, but Christ did it for me, you too can be justified today. Are you justified? I love that word. It's a great truth. It's deserving of a whole message in itself too. To be declared righteous To be declared judicially before God as one that in the file cabinet of heaven your name never was, never will be, is not in the file cabinet of sinners. It's as though there's no record anywhere that you were ever a sinner. God doesn't look at you as a justified person, as somebody who used to be a sinner. He looks at you the same way he looks at Jesus Christ, as a perfect, holy child. You know, we don't deserve that. That's salvation. That's the only way to heaven, my friend, is by being like the, the publican, the, the dirty, rotten sinner, bowing before God, not like the Pharisee, admitting your sinfulness, recognizing that you violated the law, and receiving, by God's grace, the righteousness of Christ on your behalf. Let's bow in prayer, please.
I'm going to pray, close out our service in just a second. You've been trying to be good enough to please God. You think your good works are going to outweigh your bad works on the scale of heaven someday? That's not in the Bible. It's not going to happen. We are all sinners. We've all violated the law on multiple points, which means we're guilty of violating the whole law. It's the same as being guilty on all points. So that when God sees us, cannot let us into his heaven. He cannot call us his child. We're lost. We're unrighteous. We're sinners. And only when we come before him in humility, acknowledging our violation of his law, and receiving as a free gift by faith what Christ did for us. Say, dear God, I know I'm a sinner, just like that tax collector. I'm a sinner, and I know that Jesus kept the law for me, and I put my faith and trust in what Christ did for me. You become a child of God. With your sin forgiven, you become declared righteous, justified. But this has to happen between you and God. I can't do it for you. What's, what's your heart, what's your conscience saying to you right now? Are you a declared righteous one in the eyes of God? Are you justified? Are you a game-playing legalist? Are you a sinner who loves his sin and is still running from God? When God breaks your heart, don't fight him. Don't run from him. Do like the tax collector and bow humbly before him. Admit your sin. Receive the righteousness of Christ once and for all by faith through God's grace. So, Father, do a work in us. Help us to tell ourselves the truth. Help us to recognize what it means to take this step of faith and to believe that what Jesus did was for us. And, Father, help us to teach this in our Sunday school classes and in our Bible lessons and from our pulpit that we would teach an accurate gospel, that we would not turn into legalists at any level, that we would not skew your gospel in any way, bringing any unbiblical element into our salvation other than that that is in Christ alone. So do your work in our hearts and challenges and teach us, I pray in Jesus' name, amen.